memories of, uh, of the last 30 years of what God has done through this group and through their ministry. And, and I hope that you'll be back uh, tonight to encourage them and uh, to be encouraged as they share with us tonight some phenomenal stories about what God is doing around the world. It is sad to say that what God is doing around the world in many ways he is not doing in America. It is sad to say that 80% of churches in America are plateaued or declining. We hear a lot about church growth, but there's not a lot of healthy churches out there today. We have a lot of churches that are meeting and have activities and honor their denominations, but they're not touching communities for Christ. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of my visit this summer to London when I went to St. Paul's Cathedral and our tour guide there took us down and sat us down and told us about Princess Di's wedding and told us about how it was a place of social activities and told us to make sure that we go downstairs and see the graves of great and noble people who have lived and died in England. We saw the grave of Lord Nelson. We saw the grave of many other great and famous people. And yet she forgot to point out something at St. Paul's Cathedral. She forgot to make one mention of the most famous painting that the Christian community's ever had. And that is the painting, the original artwork of Jesus standing at the door and knocking at his church. Never one mention, only a slight paragraph mention of it in the brochure. And if someone had not told us that it was there, we would not have known it. And at the last minute, we remembered that somebody had told us that, and we rushed around, and we found it. And here in this massive cathedral, over in a side corner, around a wall, there stood a life-size picture of Jesus standing at the door knocking at his church. I'm convinced that that picture is just as valid today as it was the day it was painted. That Jesus is standing outside a church that is locked and closed to him, that is unwilling to listen to him, that doesn't want to be built by his design, and he is coming in with a plan and a design and a purpose for the church, and yet the church says, we don't want to do it your way. We want to do it our way. And the reason that God is blessing in parts of the world that we are not even familiar with is because they haven't learned all the junk that we've learned. They're not having to unlearn so much tradition. They're just hearing the simple gospel message of Jesus Christ and they are believing it. And they are coming to faith in Christ and they are desiring to be what God saved them to be, not what we in America have become. When you look at the book of Revelation, you find that Jesus stands at the door and knocks, and we often use that verse to talk about those who are lost and without Christ. That is not the context of that verse. The context of that verse is Jesus standing outside of his church trying to get his people to let him in. But they refuse to let him in because when Jesus comes into a church, he disturbs it. He shakes up the status quo. He changes the structure. He removes personal agendas. And he gets the church to focus on that which he is focused on, and that is the glory of God and the souls of men. And so I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning, and I want us to talk about the image that we have in 1 Corinthians 3 of a building 
God has called us to be His building, not build buildings. We're doing that. But the church is to be a building and not a fortress. And anytime Jesus is locked out of His church, anytime a church begins to function outside of the realm and the foundation of Jesus Christ, it begins to be a fortress for people instead of a building that God wants it to be. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. That's another one of His images. God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, God did not call us to just gather in holy huddles and talk about the second coming. That's what the monks did. They gathered together and isolated and insulated themselves from the world, and they didn't want to have any contact with the outside world. They just wanted to talk about Jesus. That's wonderful to do, but that's not all we're supposed to do. Nor did God call us to build fences, as one church I served wanted to build a fence to keep certain kinds of people off the property from riding their bicycles on the property. So they wanted to build a fence and put barbed wire at the top of it. God does not want us to build fences that say, if you do this and don't do this, do this and don't do this, do this and don't do this, then you can be a part of our church. That's legalism. Paul wrote a whole book about it. It's called the book of Galatians. God did not call us to build denominations. I think one of the wisest schemes of the enemy was to create denominations and divide people over things that are not worth dividing over. I can have fellowship with anybody that believes that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And whether we agree about every little nitpicky part of doctrine is not nearly as important as that there are four billion people in this world going to hell and we've been called to do something about it. And you and I need to understand that God did not call us to exalt denominational traditions over truth. There is a sign in front of a church in Ohio. This is what the sign says. The original church of God, number two. <laughs> you go in a, in a community, especially in the Bible Belt, and you find a Harmony Church, I guarantee you there's a new Harmony. And there's probably one that's split off of that called a better Harmony. And then there's one called God's Harmony. And the only Harmony. You get a Pisgah and you get a new Pisgah. You're always going to find there's a, there's a first and then there's a second and then there's a third. Why? Because people think that the church is about them. Most of the churches that have started have never been birthed by God. Most of the churches in America today, listen to me, are illegitimate. They're illegitimate children. God never told that church to start. It started because somebody got their feelings hurt. Somebody got mad, somebody started pouting, somebody wanted their way, and they went out and they took their family, us four and no more, and they started a church and they said, we're going to have a church the way we want to have church. And God's never blessed it, and they've never grown. They may have built buildings, but they've never grown and they've never been blessed for one reason, they started for the wrong reason. They never started out of a passion and compassion for lost people. And so I want us to look at the work of the building. And there are nine symptoms or signs that I want to give you. If you're here this morning and you're looking for a church, then I want to give you nine things you need to watch out for. And they're all found and referenced or implied in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I'll just give you the reference for sake of time. 
but they are nine characteristics. If you see these kind of things in a church, you need to run. You don't need to join it. You need to leave it because it's not the church that God intended it to be. Number one is presumption. Chapter 2 and verse 5. So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Presumption. Presumption says, I know better than God. I know more than God knows. I know what's best for my church. That is an exalting opinion above revelation. When we're presumptuous, we think that God has blessed us in the past, so he's got to bless us in the future. We think that because God did something one time that he's going to do it again. Not necessarily so. God only blesses likeness to Jesus Christ. And if we are not like Jesus, then we are wrong to presume that God will bless us. Secondly, pride. Pride. Chapter 1 and verse 26. Consider your calling, brethren. What Paul was saying is there's not many mighty, not many wise, not many noble according to the flesh. What Paul was saying was, you know, you're not as hot as you think you are. I, I mean, I, I've been in some churches where they, they thought God was lucky to have them. And, you know, they were just, they were impressed with everything. I mean, they were impressed with, with every aspect of what they did. And Paul says, you need to consider your calling. You remember that the only thing that was good about you was Jesus that there was nothing worthy in you of salvation except that God loved you unconditionally, that there were not many who were mighty. And, and I want to tell you what pride does. Pride makes the Holy Spirit an additive instead of a necessity. We're so proud of what we do, so proud of who we are, that if we need the Holy Spirit, we'll ask Him to show up. But otherwise, we can do this without Him. The Holy Spirit becomes an additive. Why? Because I think I'm good enough without Him. Number three, pettiness. Chapter 1 and verse 10. That there be no divisions among you. Have you ever heard of churches getting split over where the piano was put and what color the choir robes would be and what color the carpet would be and what kind of business meeting we'd have? All that kind of, I mean, pettiness, petty things. I love the story Warren Wiersbe tells about <laughs> this pastor who had this woman. She'd come up to him every Sunday and she'd pick lint off his suit. She'd just start... She'd just, Pastor, how are you doing? And she just picked lint, just drove him crazy. So one Sunday, he put a spool of thread in his pocket and wove it into, and just had a little bit of string hanging out right here. And she just started pulling, and she kept 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 pulling, and she never did get to the end of it. Warren said, the pastor said, what happened? So she left the church, we had revival. Petty people. I tell you, you can find them in churches. They're so caught up on things that are not important that they miss what's important. Number four, power plays. Power plays. Some of these people were dismissing Paul. They were trying to push Paul aside. If you read First and Second Corinthians, you'll find that they're saying, you know, we don't have to listen to Paul. I don't care if he was struck down on the road to Damascus. I don't care if God did speak to him. We don't have to listen to Paul. We, got, we do this thing our way. We're going to have a power play, and we're just going to figure out how to get Paul out of the way. You know, we wouldn't be the first church that got rid of a preacher. You heard about the church that's got a sign out front? They change it every day. 213 days since our last split. 214 days since our last split. As if that's something to be proud of. Oh, we just keep kittling them off, running them out. Power plays within the church. Number five, pouting. 
chapter 3, verse 1. He says, I could not speak to you as spiritual, but as carnal, as babies. Have you ever heard anybody whine when somebody changed their formula? A baby whines, you just, I don't want that, I don't like that. You know, one baby can destroy a restaurant. 300 people can be in a restaurant eating, and one baby that goes ballistic can destroy everybody's meal. Same thing can happen in a church. People start pouting. How you doing? Oh, don't ask me. I, this happened to me, and I didn't get... I, and then you just go, oh, please. You know, there, if we came to church dressed like we act, half of us would come in diapers and with pacifiers in our mouths. We're always pouting about something. I was having a pity party yesterday on the way home. I was driving that long drive on I-10, and I was having a little pity party, and my wife just looked at me and said, well, you can look at it that way, or you could look at it the other way. It just depends on which way you want to look at it. I didn't need her lecturing me. <laughs> I mean, she just, I was, I was having a good time pouting about something, and she wasn't letting me do it. Sometimes we get our little classes and our groups organized around what we want to pout about. Number six, politics. It is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or any human court, he says in chapter 4, verse 1. I tell you, church politics is a lot more wicked than what goes on in Washington because we're an eternal body. We're a holy institution. and We should be above it and we should be beyond it. Number seven, prayerlessness. There's no indication that Corinth was ever a praying church. I don't know if I'd be a part of a church that didn't have a prayer ministry. I do not know if I would be a part of a church that did not have a prayer ministry. I would be afraid to join a church that just gave a token emphasis to prayer because a prayerless church is a powerless church. Number eight, the perversion of our liberty in Christ. These people had no church discipline. They were bragging on the fact that they had immorality within the walls of the church. And we live in a culture where we're more afraid of lawsuits than we are of doing what's right. And there was a perversion of liberty. And Paul in chapter 8 and 9 deals with this issue of Christian liberty and then playing favorites. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. You know, this happens in churches. A staff member leaves and some family leaves because they think more of the staff member than they think of the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, you get loyal to a staff member over Jesus and Satan has you by the throat and you don't even know it. You get loyal to a pastor over Jesus and Satan's got you because your faith is built on frail flesh, not on the Word of God. And any church that has these characteristics, I'm telling you, is about to be condemned by the divine building inspector. He tells us what a church is supposed to be. He says, we are God's building. The Apostle Peter says, we are living stones. We are the temple of the living God, 2 Corinthians 6. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he was not talking about design buildings and, and structures and bricks and mortar. He was talking about us. He will build the church on his people. And his people will be the ones. He says, you are God's building. 
Now, if you can get in mind that because of the gifts and the abilities and the talents that we have, some of us are electricians, some of us are bricklayers, some of us are landscapers, some of us are steel workers, some of us do plumbing. We, we have different gifts, but we're working for one person. Paul says that I am like a wise master builder. In other words, Paul was the contractor. Now, here's the picture that you need to get. Paul was filling a pastoral role. That's why he wrote this letter. It was a pastoral letter to his congregation. And Paul writes them a letter and says, Look, I know you're electricians, I know you're plumbers, and I know you're, you're landscapers, and I know you're all subcontractors in this building up of God's body, but, but I'm the master builder. I'm the one that has to see that it all works together. And that's what a pastor's job is to do, is to make sure that the church is building the kind of life and ministry and structure and environment where the Holy Spirit of God can work, that it is building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, not on personalities, not on politics, not on agendas, not on programs, but on the person of Jesus Christ. And each member works for the Lord. But it is the pastor's responsibility. Paul says, I'm a master builder. I'm trying to see that all these parts work together. Why? Because if one subcontractor doesn't come through, everybody else down the line is held up. You have to have people working in a process when you're building a building. They have to be working in function. The sheetrock people don't just come in whenever they feel like it. They have to have certain things in place before they can work. The bricklayers don't come in before the steel's put up. The carpet people don't come in before the floor is poured. Everything has a process, and every sub is dependent on another sub in a building program. I've learned a lot about buildings in the last two years. Everyone's dependent, and if somebody's behind, then everybody else is affected. And so Paul says, I'm the general contractor. I'm working to make sure everybody else is doing what they're supposed to be doing so we can build this church to the glory of God. And so Paul gives this illustration. He gives us three facts to remember. Number one, God is the builder. God is the builder. Whatever happens, if we can explain it in our flesh and by our programs, then God didn't build it. If we give... I, I just finished a book. I, I just finished a book, and, and quite honestly, the whole book is written this way. I want to take the credit for this, I want to take the credit for this, I want to take the credit for this, and I want to give God glory. Listen, folks, God gets the credit and the glory because we couldn't even think it up if he didn't inspire it. And if we think it up without him inspiring it, then it's a flesh and it's going to burn up one day anyway. God gets the credit and the glory. God is the builder of the church. Southern Baptists are not the builders of the church. Assembly of God not the builders of the church. The Methodists are not the builders of the church. It's God who builds his church. He chooses which one he blesses and which one grows and prospers, and he chooses which one he takes his hands off of. Secondly, Jesus is the foundation. His person, his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, his ascension are all recorded in the Scripture, and the Scripture reveals to us the foundation. God's the builder. Jesus is the foundation. No other foundation. Thirdly, what is built belongs to him. What is built belongs to him. That's why you will not find signs in this church 
with anybody's name on the back of a pew or anybody's name on anything else or anybody's name on any piece of furniture around here because it's not about us, it's about him. This pew, this church, this building, these chairs, these choir chairs, whatever it is, they don't belong to us. They belong to the Lord. I've, I've been in some places where... There, I, I preached a revival in a church where the water fountain was dedicated in memory to somebody. I didn't know if I was supposed to thank God for the water or thank that guy that had died in 1952 for the water. As bad as it tastes, I should have thanked the guy because I don't think the Lord would have given me water that bad. But You know, we, we don't do name plaques and things like that. Why? Because we don't want people to come to this church and remember people. We want them to come and remember Jesus. What we honor is Jesus Christ, and what we build belongs to Him, and the glory goes to Him, and the Word of God tells us that it is for Him that we do these things. Secondly, the way we are to build, verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. He's referring there to Apollos and Cephas and others. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now the first thing he talks about in verse 11 is the essential foundation. The essential foundation. The foundation of the church is not its missions program. That's not, that's not the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church is not its student ministry, or its children's ministry, or its Awana program, or its senior adult ministry, or its widow's ministry. The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. He is the only foundation. And it is on that foundation that we build Christ and Christ alone. Jesus said in John 5, 39, You search the Scriptures, and they bear witness of me. The foundation is foundational. It's the only one that will last. It's essential. But then he goes and he talks about the essential materials that we are to build with the essential materials that we are to build with. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, the building's going up, the foundation's been laid, that's Jesus Christ, but what are we building with? Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of the stuff that's in your notes, but I learned something in this whole building process. When we were going through all this and they were digging out all the dirt, we had torn down the fellowship hall and we were digging this deep hole in the ground, you know, I kept thinking, I hope we're not on a lime sink. I hope we're not on a lime sink. And, and we kept digging this dirt. We'd bring dirt in. We'd take dirt out. We'd bring it in, we, and we'd pack it. And I mean, you'd sit in the office, and your teeth would jar from them packing the dirt. And I kept thinking, you know, how long does it take? I mean, red Georgia clay, you don't have to do anything to red Georgia clay. It's hard as a rock anyway. Now, what, how long is this going to take? And so I'm just kind of out there watching, and I'm looking, and finally one day I just decide I'll go over and Ask our contractor, how long is it going to be before we get out of the ground? And so he explained to me in a way that a contractor can explain it to a preacher who doesn't know anything about building. I, I, you know, I, I never bought a slide road because I couldn't figure it out. You know, I, 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 he said, Pastor, he said, the dirt work determines the foundation, and the foundation determines what kind of building we can build on top of it. If we don't get the dirt work right, the foundation will crack. And if we don't get the foundation right, we can't build the kind of building that we've designed to put on this space. Everything has a reason. And this is the most important part of the work right now. 
is packing that dirt and getting it all to match up. And I went down there, and sure enough, it was matching up. But you know, we made some decisions about what we were going to build, and it was costly, very costly. But it was because we wanted to build something that would last beyond us for future generations. And so Paul says there are two distinct kind of materials that he talks about in building the church. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. One is permanent, the other is perishable. One is valuable, the other one's cheap. One is uh, appealing, the other one's kind of ordinary. Now why is Paul dealing with these materials? Remember he's talking to a church that is living off of worldly wisdom. This church wants to build on personalities and on programs. They want to ignore truth. They want to cut corners. They, they want to do kind of church their way and hope that Paul ignores it. And so Paul is going to them and saying, it's not about worldly wisdom. It's about God's wisdom. And it's about God's material. Not only is the foundation important, that the foundation is Jesus Christ, it is important what you build on that foundation. In other words, don't do something that's shoddy on top of something that's sacred. Don't build shoddy substance on top of something that's sacred. And I want to tell you something. I've watched a lot of churches through the years cut a lot of corners because they thought they could be cheap with God and be elaborate in their homes. In fact, one of the prophets writes and says, you live in your paneled houses and you have all your luxuries and you have all these fine extravagances, but the house of God stands in shambles. A lot of God's people want the church to be cheap, but they don't want to spare any expense on their boat, their car, their homes, or their clothes. It tells me something about what the church is really like because we care more about what we live in than where we meet to worship God. When you go to Romania, you will find that they are insistent on building a quality, beautiful building because they realize that that says something about their view of God. When you go around this world, you will find people that sacrifice. In Brazil, they give 30% of their income to the church because to them, the church is more important than where they live. Boy, Americans couldn't survive in Brazil. We can't survive because it's about us. And Paul says, if you're going to build that way, that's not the kind of church I want to build. I want to build with quality material. Now, the common characteristic of these materials is simply this. Can they pass the inspection? And when it talks about the, the precious stones, I, I've heard preachers talk about the gold, silver, and precious stones means jewels and diamonds and rubies, and I've read books that say that. But really, when you go back in the oldest commentaries, what Paul is dealing with there is that stones of granite or marble that have been quarried out to serve as the base on the foundation on which all the other stones would rest. And so these stones are precious and expensive because so much work has to go into quarrying them and cutting them and fitting them in the proper places so that all the other stones can rest on top of these stones. And Paul says these stones have to pass the test. He says, now you can build with wood. Wood is less expensive, but wood can burn. And wood can be destroyed by termites on the inside. And wood could be blown away by the wind. Todd Nichols uh, grew up at uh, Sagamore Hill Baptist Church. Fred Swank pastored there for 543 years, best we can tell. Fred Swank used to brag that Sagamore Hill had the largest 
wood-framed church in the world. This is the largest wood-framed church in the world. And I mean, every Sunday, he'd get up and talk about it, and he'd thump his chest. Nobody's ever built a bigger wooden church than this. And one day, one deacon came up to him and said, Brother Swank, do you realize that if a fire hit this church, it'd burn up in about five minutes? Next Sunday, he got up and said, this thing's a fire trap. We got to get out of this thing, and we got to build a stone church. We got to build something that's solid. And that building's still there. They tore down the wood and built something more substantial. Will your building of your life, what you're building into your life, what we're building into this church, pass the inspection? Finally, there's the worth of the building. Verse 13, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will show the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. First of all, the work of the church will be tested. We're going to go through a final inspection. There's a coming judgment. That judgment will not be of my peers. That will not be by your Sunday school class. That will not be by the other churches in town. The final inspection is going to come through the eyes of Jesus Christ. He's going to test us on that day. There is coming a day when every one of us will give an account of what materials we use to build his church. If we tipped God or if we were sacrificial. If we gave of our best or just gave when we had to. If we served God willingly or if we served him grudgingly. If we gave out of a heart of love or if we gave out of a grudging attitude. All of our work will be revealed. We're going to stand before Jesus Christ. John says in the book of Revelation that his eyes are like fire and he is going to judge us just like he judged those churches in Revelation and he will look through and he will see where we have compromised. He will see where we have backslidden. He will see where we have negotiated for lesser demands. He will see where we have lied and stolen. He will see all of our lives and he will test our work to see if we really built the church that he commissioned us to build. If we really did what he saved us to do or if we just tried to skim by. Not only will the work of the church be tested, but the true nature of the work will be revealed. Revealed with fire. Fire purges. Fire purifies. The fire is going to show up what's there. The fire is going to show up what's not there. And there are a lot of churches and a lot of Christians that on the surface look like they've got a lot going for Jesus. But one day the fire is going to come and there's not going to be much left. And he says they'll be saved but as through fire. Oh, we'll get to heaven, but just barely. The fire is going to test us. The work is I've got to stand before God, and he's going to look at me at a, as a contractor. And he's going to say, Michael, I gave you this much time to pastor that church. Now, what kind of material did you use? What kind of ministries did you start? What did you do? What did you address? What did you deal with? What did you stop? Where did you discipline? And he's going to take me not to my peers and say, well, let's go up to Atlanta and find some of those hot-growing churches in Atlanta and let's see how you compare to them. That's not going to be who he compares me to. He's not going to say, well, why don't you pick five of your friends and we'll kind of see how you do compared to them. That's not where he's going to compare me. He's going to take the Word of God and he's going to say, let's see how you did according to this. 
And that will be for me and it will be for you. At the turn of the century, in the 1890s, England had more evangelical churches than some of the greatest preachers that have ever lived. Charles Spurgeon, Alexander McLaren, Joseph Parker, all preached in London at the same time. In London, it, was, uh, it makes Atlanta look like a back road. London was a preacher capital. I mean, people flocked by the thousands to those churches. During that same time, in the late 1880s and the 1890s, D.L. Moody was ministering in the United States and over in England and in Scotland. When we went to Scotland, we stayed in the Roxburgh Hotel, which is right next door to Charlotte's Chapel. Charlotte's Chapel is a big granite church, solid granite, darkened through the ages from all the, the soot and the smut from pollution. But when Dale Moody preached in Charlotte's Chapel, he preached there in a meeting and 3,000 people were saved in that meeting. For 14 years after that, every year Charlotte's Chapel baptized 1,000 new believers a year for 14 years. Two blocks down the road, Alexander White pastored one of the great churches in Edinburgh. Dr. Alexander White wrote the, wrote the book, Bible Characters of the Old and New Testament, one of the great writers of his time. Charlotte's Chapel was pastored by Graham Scroggy, a great writer, Alan Redpath, a great writer. Today, Charlotte's Chapel kind of gets along. But it doesn't have an impact on the city. It's just on an alley now, on the side, and you can't go in it because it's locked up all week long. They only open for church services, and then they're shut down. The Saturday night before church, there was a barroom brawl right out in front of the church. You go by Spurgeon's Tabernacle today where he once preached to 10,000 people and the facade of that 10,000-seat structure is still there. But behind that facade is a section just about as big as this section right here. And on any given Sunday, that building, which was bombed out in the war and rebuilt to only be this size, now has less than 100 people in it. When you go and ask a cabbie in London, take me to Elephant and Castle, they know where Elephant and Castle is. When you ask them, where is Spurgeon's Tabernacle, they have no idea. And yet that facade stands at the very center of Elephant and Castle, one of the major intersections in London. When you go to Wesley's Chapel, you will find John Wesley buried out back, along with Adam Clark, who is another great Bible preacher. And inside Wesley's Chapel, you can go in and you can get a tour guide that will take you on a tour and tell you about all the stained glass in the building and show you where all the graves are. And then when you turn to that tour guide, you say, well, how many people, the founder of the Methodist Church, how many people worship here on Sunday? He said, oh, we have 250 members. thought if John Wesley could get out of that grave, he'd go tell the Methodist Church to repent. Because I want to tell you something, the Methodist Church in America today is nothing of what John Wesley was. Nothing. We were home visiting my in-laws, and they said, you know, we're Methodists now. I said, yep. And I said, and John Wesley couldn't get a job in a Methodist church today because he preached against sin too much. Couldn't get a job in most Baptist churches either, by the way, I might add. Today in London, there are mosques under construction in every section of London. No church in London has had a building program in nearly 50 years. In the 1890s, 
England was the largest mission-sending nation in the world. After World War II, after they had survived that, rather than thanking God, London began to be at the political center and socialism began to take over. And in 1952, England received more missionaries than she sent. Today, the gospel is barren and void. And when you go to London today and when you go to Scotland today, you will find a lot of churches that are cold and closed. You've got to get a tour guide to get you in. They've got a fence around them. Why? Because somewhere along the line, they became a fortress. They became a fortress of, of just holding their own. I think I told the early service this. I don't remember. When I, when I do three, I never remember which one I do. But we, we were walking around London. We were right by Trafalgar Square, and I saw a church, and they had their mission statement on a handout where you could get out. Number one on their mission statement, we are committed to the Great Commission. I'm like, wow, this is pretty good. You know, big church standing there, hundreds of years old. So we decided to walk in at noon and see what they were doing. They were having a piano and organ recital of Bach. You say, well, that sounds pretty classy. Not when there are 150 homeless people sleeping all around the church. I'll tell you something, folks. This world doesn't need Bach. It needs a bologna sandwich. It needs somebody to feed it. It needs somebody to love it. It needs people that quit saying, this is our church, and we're going to guard the doors and make sure certain people can't get in, and we're going to make sure that we're true to our tradition. We need to get over that junk, and we need to look out and see that there are hurting and dying people all around us, and nobody is saying to them, we care about you, we love you, we'll meet you at the point of your need. Can we help you? Funny, Jesus said, I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty. Well, Lord, if we'd have known, where were you when all that happened? <laughs> oh, I was here. Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. I'll tell you something, folks. Some of us are too big for God to use. And we're too worried about how we look and not worried enough about who God's called us to be. And this church, for it to be a 21st century church, is going to have to go back 2,000 years and become what Jesus told us to be at the beginning. I could care less if Baptist is on the sign. If Jesus doesn't bless us, we could put Baptist on every wall and it won't make any difference. I could care less if we do some of the things that people think are important for us to do I want to do one thing. When I stand before God, I want to say, God, I did everything I knew to do for this church to be pleasing and honoring to you. I didn't cut any corners. I didn't pull any punches. I didn't back off any from what you call us to be. And each one of us will give an account as to what kind of stones we put down in the building of this church. When this church opens those doors in a few months, the curious will come and they'll look, and they'll walk around, and they'll make comments. But i tell you who I want to come. I want people to come who feel like they're not welcome in a lot of places in this town. And I want some of you to get over some things so that we can love people in Jesus' name.
And I want you and I to start seeing people the way Jesus sees them. I want us to start thinking about people the way Jesus thinks about them. And I want us to quit driving through this community with our blinders on and our praise music blaring, saying, oh, Jesus, it's good to be in Sherwood. It's good to be in Sherwood. You're just blessing us so much. We're so glad to be here. And I want us to see the people that think they're not welcome here. And stop and say, you want to come to church with me? Oh, I couldn't go there. That's a lot of rich white folks. Now, you want to come to church with me? You come, they'll leave. <laughs> and we'll all say amen. I was talking to Warren Wiersbe this week, and he said, uh, he said, you know what uh, Layman Strauss used to pray, don't you? And I said, no. He said, I asked Layman one day, he said, how do, how do you think you grow a church? Layman said, I pray for funerals. And he said, based on my track record, I'm pretty good at it. You know what, folks? Sometimes churches grow through the back door of revival. Sometimes churches grow through people that are no longer useful to the kingdom being taken home. And sometimes churches grow because people that don't want to do it God's way just kind of go to the side and God moves in. I read an interesting story this week. Church up in the Northeast, they wrote half of their membership and told them they weren't members anymore. Said, since you have not come, since you do not give, since you do not participate in anything that we do, we want you to know that we have removed you from membership. <laughs> said, well, oh, I look at Baptist churches and say, we got 20,000 members. They ain't got 20,000 members. They got about 2,000. They can't find 18,000 of them. Folks, we're not here to impress people with numbers. We're not here to impress people with our clothes. We're not here to impress people with our stuff. We're not here to impress people with our technology. We're here for one reason, to give people an impression of who Jesus is. And Jesus never cut any words out when he was dealing with Pharisees. But boy, if you want to see Jesus, you find him ministering to people that the Pharisees said, we don't want that kind. And that's Jesus. I would submit to you that what most of our churches in America are doing today has nothing to do with Jesus. And that's why we're going to hell. That's why America is going down the tubes. It's because our churches have forgotten who we exist for and what we exist to do. To give glory to God and to touch lost people. Would you stand with heads bowed and eyes closed? Just a minute, Joe's going to sing a song of invitation. Our staff's going to be here at the front. Now, if you're here this morning as a guest and you want a typical church, this is probably not the one for you. And if we are typical, we're trying not to be. We're trying to be biblical, not typical. And that means that things are going to be different. 
That means that we have to adjust to the foundation, and we have to build our building in light of the foundation that's been built. You and I are called to be different, unique, set apart, the ecclesia, the called out ones. Truth used to sing a song called Ecclesia, be a place of love where honest men are known. Tell you, this community needs this church at its best. It does not need this church just going through the motions. They need us at our best. And at our best is when we are like Jesus. And for us to be like Jesus, God has to change our hearts. I'll tell you something. There are people that I don't, I don't want to love. And I don't want to touch. And I don't want to get close to. But if I'm going to be like Jesus, I've got to do that. I don't have a choice. I don't have an option. You know why? Because my life was just as dirty on the inside as theirs is on the outside. I was just as ugly on the inside as they appear to be on the outside. But God still looked down and took a nail-scarred hand and touched me and said, I can clean you up if you'll let me. And so whether it's to come and to just commit yourself today to being the believer that God's called you to be or to come today for the first time and to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Joe's going to sing, and as he sings, our staff's here at the front. You come right now. Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God, may I be like you. Oh, change my heart, oh God, and make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God, May I be like you. You are the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me, this is what I Change my heart, oh God, make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God, may I be like you. Father, make us like you. Give us eyes to see like you see. Give us ears to hear like you hear, give us hearts that beat in tune with you. Lord, you're going to have to strip away a lot of junk from us if we're going to be what you've called us to be. We're more concerned about our investments and our homes and our cars and our houses and lands than we are about the kingdom. We don't know much about sacrifice. We don't know much about unconditional love. We don't know much about 
holiness and righteousness. Or we know a lot of religion. Or we got religion down. But Father, burn away our religion and give us Jesus. Pure and simple. In His meekness and in His power. Give us Jesus. Fill this place with an accepting love of the Holy Spirit. Give us a heart that is so in tune with you that it grieves us for any time and any way that we gather in this place and the lost do not feel welcome or someone doesn't come to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Just a minute, we're going to be dismissed, but before we do, let me remind you about next Sunday. Now, you can look around until it's very crowded in here. But next Sunday, we have one service at 10.30 in here. Middle school, preschool children will be out in other meetings. High school up will be in here. We're going to have chairs on the platform. We're going to cover the baptistry. We have chairs there. We're going to have chairs overflow in the choir room to talk about the vision of where we're going, 2001. What God wants to do and what God needs to do in our life and in our midst as a church. So 10.30 till noon, no Sunday school next week, no early service, no 11 o'clock service, 10.30 to noon, we will meet in here to worship and to see what God's got ahead of us. Now what that means is it's going to be crowded. We're going to have chairs everywhere we can put them. We've got the overflow. But I know what some of you are thinking. Well, I'll just stay home, put a TV dinner in, sit in the recliner and watch it. It's not going to be on television. It's not going to be on television later that week. If you're going to get it, you're going to have to be here. This is an important time in the life of our church. Very important time for us to think about what God wants us to be. What we started today is to start talking about the kind of church that we have to be if we're going to reach the next generation of people. And it's going to require adjustments on our part. We talked about it today. We'll talk about it more next week and about the vision and about how you can be a part of what God's doing in touching this community. So 10.30 next week, in here, no television live, no delayed. So if you're going to get it, you've got to be here. Turn to your wife and tell her, I think I've got to be here. <laughs> All right? Come on up, honey. Come on up. Patrick, can you take her? Come on, dear. Okay. Let's pray for her right now, okay? Father, I pray for this young lady that somehow in the midst of people that have stood here with their arms folded and their lips stuck out, you still spoke. God, forgive us. Forgive us that we stand here on our blessed assurance and we almost missed you doing something. God, I am tired of being proud of who we are. I'm sick of complacency during the invitation. I'm tired of apathy in the pews of this church and we thump our chest and think we're the best church in town. God, I want you to do a work in us that changes us. God, do not let us go through the motions any longer. Lord God, speak to us. 
rip us us, take us out, do whatever you got to do, but don't let us stay the same. Lord, I'm sick and tired of normal. I want supernatural. I want your spirit to work in ways that people can come and respond and be broken before you and come desperately to you. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, do you realize that six men this week at the Anchorage prayed to receive Christ? Are they going to feel welcome when they come? Are you going to look at them like, they're not quite dressed like we think they ought to be dressed? Anybody else need to come this morning? We got a moment. Anybody else need to step out? Anybody else need to change? Folks, we're not going to play games. Anybody else that doesn't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior right now? I'm not asking you to become a part of the church before you meet Jesus. I'm asking you to meet Jesus. And then forgive us when we don't look like Him. Because we do know better. We just don't always live up to what we know. Father, I ask you in Jesus' name, God, break us. Lord God, truth's been and seen people with physical leprosy, but I'm afraid that some of us spiritually are lepers. We've lost the ability to reach out with our hearts to people. We're stuck. We're focused on ourselves. And we have no joy and we have no power and we have no life because we've somehow missed who Jesus is. Lord, dismiss us from this place with a burden, with a desire, some to go to Sunday school. Lord, I know that there are some Sunday school classes that need to leave from here and go pray. They need to get on their face before you. They don't need another lesson. They just need to get humble before you. Lord, I know that there are some people that need to get some things right before they come back tonight. Lord, whatever we've got to do to be ready for what you want to do, and I pray that we'll be willing to adjust to it. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you tonight at 6 o'clock. Okay. I figured we...